Lesson 7, Baptism's Blessings and Daily Meanings, page 47. If you would like a workbook, just let me know. And on page 47, on to page 48, you have a couple of sections or selections or segments from the Catechism, Luther's Small Catechism, which is that summary statement of doctrine, that summary of what we believe and teach. Um, it's not the Bible, but it is a reflection of what the Bible teaches. And so it's a nice way to look at this from a different, from a different angle, not just from the overall topical. Well, this is more, yeah, the Catechism is kind of a topical study of these, of these topics and the the Bible is kind of a straight through um, discussion on a lot of these topics but they're written in a particular context and we will talk about that at a later episode as well so tonight I'm beginning with the third article of the Apostles Creed I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Christian Church the communion of Saints the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting amen what does this mean I believe that I cannot, by my own thinking, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified, and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth, and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church he daily and fully forgives all sins to me and all believers, on the last day he will raise me and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. And then tonight, talking about baptism, the institution of baptism. First, our first question, what is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is water used by God's command and connected with God's word, which is that word of God. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The blessings of baptism. Secondly, what does baptism do for us? Baptism works forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. What are these words and promises of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The power of baptism. Third, how can water do such great things? It is certainly not the water that does such things, but God's word, which is in and with the water, and faith which trusts this word used with the water. For without God's word, the water is just plain water, and not baptism. But with this word, it is baptism, that is, a gracious water of life and a washing of rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Where is this written? St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy saying. And then finally, the fourth part of baptism, the meaning of baptism for our daily life. Fourth, what does baptizing with water mean? Baptism means that the old Adam in us should be drowned by daily contrition and repentance, and that all its evil deeds and desires be put to death. It also means that a new person should daily arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Going on to the next page. Sorry if that's a little loud in the microphone here. Where is this written? St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, We were buried with Christ through baptism into death, 
In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. All right, so that's um, kind of a, a review and a preview. <laughs> the review of the last couple of lessons where we've talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, especially in conversion. And baptism is one of the tools that he uses for conversion. And so what one of the things we're going to begin with is from Acts chapter 22, talking about conversion, talking about here, the conversion of Paul. You might remember Paul as the guy who wrote um, a number of New Testament books. He was a he was a missionary and he had a bit of a name change. Um, his original name was Saul. And um, and that's kind of like you and I would have a first name. His first name was Saul. And then Paul was either his second name or like his last name. Um, and after his conversion, he chose to be known by Paul um, because Paul was a much more Roman name, much more non-Jewish name, and he was a missionary to the non-Jewish people. And so he he tried to kind of emphasize that aspect, that he was specifically called by God as a minister to these non-Jewish people, non-Jewish people that we call Gentiles. Um, it's kind of the distinction that the scriptures use is that there are the Jews and then all the non-Jews, <laughs> those would be the Gentiles. Um, and when Paul emphasizes that, he emphasizes that there's this incredible change in his life. Anyway, Acts chapter 22, verses 1 through 16. And if you follow along in your workbook and on the screen, you'll see two points that we will see here in this text. First of all, that the apostle Paul spoke to an angry crowd that wanted him dead for what he taught about Jesus. And then secondly, Paul used his personal history to witness to the truth of God's forgiving love. Acts 22. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the way in the law of our fathers, and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. 
That's our reading, Acts 22, verses 1 through 16. Um, one of the times when Paul recounts for some listeners, especially when he's on trial, uh, when he recounts how it is that he came to be a preacher, a missionary um, about this Jesus. So number one, before Paul, called Saul, became a Christian, what had he been doing? If you think back to verses three through five, or if you're following along in a, in a paper Bible or maybe in the Bible app on your phone, what had Paul been doing um, in verses three through five? Well, he had been persecuting Christians, and he hadn't just done that in Jerusalem and Judea. And now he was going all the way up to Syria and this place called Damascus to find more Christians and put them in jail, to put them in prison. Um, he had been, Paul had been the one um, overseeing the martyrdom of Stephen, the very first Christian who was killed for being a Christian, aside from Jesus Christ himself, of course. <laughs> uh, number two, by persecuting Christians, Paul thought that he was serving God. What happened that showed, showed Paul that he was wrong? That's in verses six through eight. We'll go to that one. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell, fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Oh boy, that's got to be a bit of a shock. What happened that showed Paul that he was wrong? Well, on his way to go arrest Christians, Paul was blinded by a bright light and he heard the voice of Jesus. Number three, what did Jesus tell Paul to do? Um, that's in verse 10. Paul asks, what should I do? Get up and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. All right, so he's on the way to Damascus. Jesus says, well, keep going. <laughs> You're almost there. Um, you've, got, you've got a task here, here in this Damascus. Um, so go into the city of Damascus and wait for more instructions. And Paul isn't able to see. Um, we hear about the conversion of Paul three separate times here in the book of Acts. And, um, and one of the times we hear about, you know, when he's, when he's baptized, when Ananias comes to him, then something like scales fell off his eyes. But he was there for three days. Hopefully I'm not getting ahead of myself too much. Paul was sitting there for three days, not eating, not drinking. And Paul had been very well trained in what the Old Testament said. And he had three days to think about all that he had learned and all that he knew about the work of Jesus and the life of Jesus, because he was in Jerusalem at that time. Um, and he had certainly heard about it and all that he knew from the Old Testament and a lot, a lot of study on the Old Testament. He basically has a doctorate or a couple of doctorates in the Old Testament. That was, that's the equivalent of the schooling that he has. And for three days, Paul sat there and his conscience must have just been racked with guilt. Oh my, I can't believe that I've been persecuting the one that I have been worshiping my entire life. So number four, um, one day soon after that, God sent a visitor named Ananias to Paul. What two things did God do for Paul through Ananias? That was verses 13 and 15. 
if you're following along. Uh, first of all, he worked a miracle through Ananias to restore Paul's vision that's he, that he's able to see. And second of all, he showed him that he was to become a missionary, that he was to go preach about this Jesus whom he has just been persecuting, that Jesus has a special task for him. <laughs> And he, you know, in a very real sense, he was blind and now he can see um, both spiritually, physically, and even metaphorically. Um, number five, according to Ananias, what blessing would Paul receive through baptism? That is verse 16. And this is interesting because every time that baptism shows up in the New Testament, we have baptism doing something. Um, get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And this is the, I'm using the new, the NIV 1984 version. Um, I haven't looked at the, this precise Greek around that, but my sense is that, maybe I can look that up, that the word there for washing one's sins away, um, it's kind of a middle, a middle voice. So it's not just you wash your sins away or have your sins washed away, but it's kind of in between those two, that your sins will be washed away for your own good. That's pretty cool. Um, so according to Ananias, what blessing would Paul receive? Well, his sins would be washed away. Plain and simple. Number six, baptism is one of the sacraments. And you'll notice all the words in purple in your text or in your workbook here are, are terms that we have learned thus far. So baptism is, baptism is one of the sacraments. In lesson six, we learned that in a sacrament, an earthly element is connected with God's word. What is the earthly element in baptism? This is even where we get the word baptism. The earthly element is water. Um, the most, one of the most common things in, in all of creation, or at least on earth, um, is, is water. And that word baptism is actually comes from a Greek word that means to put water on something. So it's even right there. Uh, number seven, read Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. And this will be in our supplemental passages uh, right over here. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus approached and spoke to his disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples from all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to keep all the instructions I have given to you. And surely I am with you always until the end of the age. Um, you'll notice, therefore go and gather disciples, um, th this is, this is a newer translation that we're, that we're using right here. And this is one of the places where they didn't choose the best word and it really is go and make disciples. Um, but how do you make disciples? Well, you make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them. Okay. All right. Not to get off track on translations. <laughs> Why do we baptize people? Well, Jesus told us to baptize people. He said, go and make disciples from all nations. He doesn't say, go and make disciples except everybody who's, whose last name is Schultz or whose first name is, is Jane. Um, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, not just the people who look like you or the people who don't look like you. Um, those who are close to you, those who are living nearby, as well as those who are not living nearby and perhaps that you don't even know. 
Um, we'll take that. We'll take that red box on the page, page 48. And this is the question that that often comes up. How do we baptize? Um, some people claim that the only right way to baptize people is to immerse them completely in water. That means to dunk them completely under the water. While there is a wonderful picture of death and resurrection with such a picture, that isn't necessary. Our word to baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to wash with water. Um, it was often used to describe a ceremonial washing by which someone would sprinkle water on something to purify it. Um, Mark chapter 7 um, has, has a note which includes dining couches, because when we use this general word baptize or baptizo, we see, well, how do you, how do you baptize your hair? How do you wash your hair? You put water on it. Maybe you stand underneath uh, the, the shower and, and you run your hand through the hair. Or, yeah. And uh, how do you baptize a cup after you're done done using it at supper time? Well, maybe you dunk it into the sink or maybe you put it into the dishwasher to be sprayed. Um, how do you baptize let's see how do you baptize your hands after you've been working out in the garden you maybe put them under running water or maybe you fill up a sink and then you scrub your hands underneath the water how do you baptize um, the couch or the carpeting when someone spills grape juice on it when your little child you know spills some juice on, on the couch or the carpeting are you going to take it down to the river take it down to the mommy river or lake erie maybe and dunk it in the water so that you can get that spot out well, no. Um, and that's the word, and that's the setting that Mark chapter 7 uses. It's It talks about baptizoing, which is that Greek word to put water on something, um, putting water on cups and pitchers and kettles and dining couches. So how do you baptizo those things? How do you put water on them? Well, you don't have to dunk them underwater. If something is so small enough, you can, but you don't have to. And you're certainly not going to dunk your, your nice couch under into the lake. That costs a couple hundred bucks to replace. Um, and the point is that this word baptizo is a very common Greek word. And there has been... Um, some fairly exhaustive studies, like there's there's a set of four books, and each of those books is like 300 pages long, um, covering four different eras of the Greek language. And the author has basically devoted, devoted a good portion of his academic career to cataloging all the times in all of the Greek language when that word baptizo was used for something. Um, and because that's the real question. If somebody says that baptism means that you have to dunk them underwater, um, then there's nothing in scripture that says you have to dunk them underwater. And their argument rests only on the Greek word itself. And But based on that exhaustive study of all the instances of the word baptizo, you get the impression, and we that was his conclusion as well after all this research, that baptizo just means to put water on something. And that may take a different form um, depending on the circumstances. Maybe if your house is on fire, you know, call a fire department to baptizo your house. Um, if your hands are, are covered in, you know, some some food that, you know, some raw meat that you just, you're, you're making hamburgers or something like that, and you baptizo them under running water. Maybe you, you know, you get the picture. Anyway, um, the rest of the rest of that red box, that third paragraph, we recognize that any application of water, 
such as sprinkling um, or pouring or even immersing uh, when connected with God's triune name as he directs us in his word, as we had here in Matthew 28, any application of water with the word of God is a valid baptism. So just because somebody, you know, maybe somebody is coming from a background where they were told that they had to be immersed, that they had to be dunked, dunked, dunked under the water in order for it to be a valid baptism. I would say to them, dear friend, were you baptized in a Christian church or baptized by Christians who had a, you know, a Christian proper Christian understanding of the triune God? Were you baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, yes, then that is sufficient. Um, if somebody says, well, pastor, I was just baptized by sprinkling, or maybe I was in the, I was in the NICU as a teeny tiny little premature baby. Um, and all the, at the time, you know, the pastor or somebody on staff at the hospital just came in and used a sterile, sterile little water swab to swab me with some water and baptize me in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is that valid? Well, yeah. <laughs> is there application of water with the triune name of God? Definitely. So that's, I mean, that's the bottom line because some people will try to make a mountain out of a molehill when it comes to the method of baptism. That one has to be immersed and that distracts from the actual power and purpose of baptism, which we will get to beginning in verse or number eight. How's that for a transition? Read Acts 2 verse 38, Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15, and Titus 3 verses 4 through 7. Then review the second part of baptism in the box at the beginning of this lesson. We did that at the beginning. And if you're watching on YouTube or listening to the podcast, you can hit pause and review that now. And then we'll read those verses, Acts 2, Hebrews 2, and Titus 3. Um, I'll go over to our supplemental verses here. Acts 2, verse 38. This goes to the top of the next column. Peter answered. He answered the crowd, the first Christian Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. We'll scroll back up here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children share flesh and blood, Jesus also shared the same flesh and blood, so that through death he could destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. And Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward mankind appeared, he saved us, not by righteous works that we did ourselves, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs in keeping with the hope of eternal life. So those were, and you can review that other section from the box, um, from that second part of Holy Baptism. You can pause it now if you hadn't done so already. What blessings! do we receive in baptism? Forgiveness of sins, first of all. Freedom from death and the devil, or so in other words, life, spiritual life and life forever, and eternal life or salvation. And so, I mean, the, the shorthand that I usually have in the back of my mind is you receive the forgiveness of sins, and where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. 
where there isn't forgiveness of sins, where a person has forsaken the forgiveness that Jesus gives through his gospel, uh, where there isn't forgiveness of sins, there is only death and damnation. But baptism gives the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. So then number nine, this goes on to page 49 in your workbook. And there at the top of page 49, you see the blessings of baptism described for us. Forgiveness of sins, deliverance from death and the power of the devil, and eternal salvation. So forgiveness of sin, life, and salvation. Um, and baptism means that you are a child of God and an heir of eternal life. Number nine. Paul, who had been an enemy of God's church and his people, was baptized. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, that teaching and baptizing was intended for all nations. Who then should be baptized? Easy, hopefully. <laughs> all nations, um, all people. He doesn't say all people over age three or all people over age six or all people who have never never had a donut in their entire lives. <laughs> he says all people, all nations, and he doesn't have any limitations on that. That baptism is intended for all. So flip that question around. Should we exclude anyone from baptism based on the words of Jesus, based on what the Bible says? Um, no, <laughs> it's for all people. Is a little baby a person? Yeah. Is baptism for that little baby? Yeah. Um, not to not to belabor the point, but number 11, should we also baptize little children? Because did Jesus say, um, go into all the world and baptize all nations after they reach age three or six or 12 or, or 18 or 20 or 21 or 24? Should we also baptize little children? Uh, Luke 18 verses 16 and 17 here on your screen. Sorry, I'll scroll properly now. Um, Luke 18, 16 and 17. Jesus invited the children, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Amen, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. All right, so should we also baptize little children? Well, Yes, they because they can believe in Jesus. He holds up this child as an example of faith. That faith is not merely some cognitive knowledge. You know, we can't just say, well, because that's where this argument mostly comes from, is the idea that faith is simply some possession of knowledge and some cognitive ability, um, which has some pretty severe and serious implications once you take it to its logical conclusion. What they're really saying is that since we cannot see this this little child make a decision and for Jesus and have the cognitive ability to do so, then therefore, as a result, they would say that little child cannot truly have faith and baptism that child cannot be baptized. Because that's the other thing, and not to not to try to pack too much into this one lesson. There's enough here already. But there's this very popular idea in Christianity that baptism is an up arrow. This is what I do for God. This is how I bring myself into the presence of God. And the way the Bible describes it is that baptism is a down arrow. This is God's gift to me. This is God's grace to me. This is how God gives us forgiveness of sins. And where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. Um, and that red box on the side, 
Who can baptize? Good question. Um, pastors in our churches are, in part, called to administer the sacraments, and I do so publicly on behalf of the congregation. So when I go to the hospital and baptize somebody, um, or baptize somebody privately or publicly in the worship service, I'm not just doing that as Peter Hagen, I'm doing that as Pastor Hagen on behalf of Resurrection Evangelical Lutheran Church. Uh, thus, baptizing is part of the pastor's job. For good order, a pastor will typically be the person in the congregation who baptizes children or adults. However, in an emergency, any Christian may take water, apply it to the person, and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That baptism is just as valid and effective as it would be if a pastor had done it. That the power of baptism rests in the Word, not in the pastor. But there is some good order in having the pastor baptize. Um, and that's where, you know, pastorally, I like to encourage families, let's find a way to baptize your children quickly, uh, relatively soon after birth, rather than waiting, waiting, uh, you know, a few months or waiting for a special holiday or a special birthday or something like that. It's better to baptize the child now and we can have a celebration later if you would like. All right, so our key term, baptism. In the purple box on page 49, baptism is the work of the Holy Spirit through water and the word to create or strengthen faith and to give us the forgiveness of sins. Kind of what we've been talking about the entire time here, right? Number 12, read Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, and the address to the Lord's Prayer, that's at the bottom in the blue box, because we are baptized in God's name, we often say that an adoption has taken place. What does it mean that we have been adopted into God's family? Romans 8 verses 14 through 17, there on the screen. Indeed, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery so that you are afraid again, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we call out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself joins our spirit in testifying that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, since we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So we often say that an adoption has taken place. What does it mean that we have been adopted into God's family? Well, he is our loving father. Um that Abba Father. It's a term of respect, but also a term of endearment. Um, it's not, it's not daddy. <laughs> it's, you know, like a little child saying, da, da, da. Um, it's a little bit more respectful than that, but it's, it, you know, the term father generally is a, is a good translation, I think. And that's kind of reflected for us in that blue box at the bottom, the address of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children, so that we may pray to him as boldly and confidently as dear children ask their dear father. Page 50, um, kind of a description of baptism for us. Baptism is a sacrament. We use water in the name of the triune God, and this is for all nations. All nations includes, obviously, people of, of every nation, tribe, people, and language, um, adults, 
as well as children. And children, <laughs> why do we baptize children? Because first of all, they're part of all nations. Uh, second of all, children are sinful, whether we believe it or not. Um, and then third of all, that children are have a capacity to believe. That faith is not simply some cognitive knowledge bucket, <laughs> right? But rather faith is a trust that God creates within the heart of the person. Read Mark 16, verse 16, um, and Luke 23, verses 42 and 43. This is one of those questions that will probably be revised in the next edition, um, but it's, it's worth talking about. Um, Luke 23, verses 42 and 43, because this gets into the question of, well, what about the thief on the cross on Good Friday when Jesus was crucified? One of the two was mocking him, and the other... The other defended Jesus and said, don't you know that we are getting what we deserve and this has done nothing wrong? And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we see that baptism is necessary, although it is not absolutely necessary. Um, baptism is necessary because Jesus said it is necessary but it is not absolutely necessary. That means that it is not necessary in absolutely every every case and occasion because the Holy Spirit works and creates faith through the gospel. That gospel is expressed in word and baptism and holy communion. All right, so Mark 16, verse 16 on your, on your, on your screen here, Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It does not say whoever does not believe or is not baptized will be condemned. So what is, what is it that saves? Well, Jesus saves. <laughs> Jesus is the reason that you're in heaven. And he creates faith to receive that forgiveness and to receive that righteousness, um, which he has won for all people. And he creates that faith through the word and through holy baptism. And if there is no faith, there's no forgiveness. Um, that faith is created in baptism. It can be created in other ways too. Luke 23, uh, verses 42 and 43. Then a thief crucified next to Jesus said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Amen, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So why do we place so much importance on the sacrament? Well, Jesus himself stressed that it was important. And baptism is a means of grace. And baptism is seems to be particularly attuned for young children because you can't, you know, you can talk with a grown adult in most cases and ask them what they believe and ask them, you know, talk with them on the basis of the word. Um, and you can have a conversation with them, but you can't, you know, quiz your little three-month-old or or even year-old or two-year-old or three-year-old child necessarily. You can't say, well, what do you believe? What do you believe Jesus did for you? Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? <laughs> do you believe that your sin has been forgiven? Um, you can You can ask those things as a parent, and it's very good to have those conversations, but baptism provides a comfort that doesn't depend on hearing somebody else say what they believe. Baptism works because 
the promise of our God is attached to it. So it is sure and certain that God has carried out his promise of creating faith once again, even in this little being who all they do is eat and sleep and cry and, and get diaper changes. Even then that little youngest of children, um, you can be confident that Jesus has created faith in that heart as well. So that even if, even if something tragic were to happen, there is still the comfort that that baptized child is safe in heaven with Jesus. All right. Uh, next section, still on page 50, talking about 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22, and looking at the flood as a picture of holy baptism. Uh, 1 Peter 3, this Peter that we talk about here is the Apostle Peter, also known as Simon Peter or Cephas. Um, and he wrote two letters, uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, toward the end of your New Testament. And what we'll notice here is that Peter uses the flood of Noah's time as a picture for baptism. And he writes, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Just look at how that's phrased. <clears throat> Excuse me. Baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. All right. So there's a lot there. And um, right now we're just looking at the baptism aspect of this. Number 14, read what God said at the time of the flood in Genesis 6, verse 7. That'll be in the supplemental verses here. Supplemental, uh, we'll scroll to this side. Here we are. Genesis 6, verse 7. The Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, along with the animals, the creeping things, and the birds of the sky, because I regret that I have made them. All right. So do we, looking at what God says there, do we most often think of the flood as an expression of God's law or God's gospel? A little bit of a review term, I suppose. God's law is norm, how we normally think of it in talking about God's judgment on a sinful world, that they have fallen short and there are consequences for it. And he brings down his law or his judgment um, and cuts short their time of grace. Number 15, Peter, though, seems to argue that the flood was also an expression of God's love, his gospel. At that time that Noah lived, he and his family probably weren't the only believers on earth, but they were in the vast minority. Threats to their faith were all around. How can we understand the water of the flood as a good thing, a saving thing? And this is the point that Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, it washed away all the bad things and the people that threatened God's promises, that the waters of the flood uh, were God's judgment on the world, and that same water was God's water of salvation for his, for his people. 
number 16 how is the water of baptism like the water of the flood verses 21 and 22 this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a good conscience toward god or the word there is a legal claim basically that you like you have if you have a deed to a house then you have a legal claim to that property um and this is that same word that you have the deed to a good conscience before god on the basis of this baptism that now saves you also that that has given you the deed, the legal claim to a good conscience standing before God. And this baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So pretty simple. We'll keep it simple on this one. Number 16, how's the water baptism like the water of a flood? The flood? Well, it saves us. Awesome. Number 17, read Genesis Chapter 7, verses 22 and 23 should be here. Here we are in the supplemental passages, Genesis 7, 22 and 23. Everything that breathed the breath of life through its nostrils, that is, everything that was on the dry land, died. Every living thing that was on the face of the earth was wiped out, including mankind, livestock, creeping things, and the birds of the sky. They were all wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, as well as those who were with him in the ark. So what were the final results of the flood? Well, everything was destroyed, except for those on the ark. Well, that's cool. That's pretty intense. <laughs> that's the reality. Number 18, the flood completely destroyed every living creature on earth. What does baptism do to our sins? Well, completely removes them. Whether you want to use the image of the flood, that the water of judgment on sin was the water of salvation for the believer, um, or whether you use the picture of washing, as scripture does often, that you have been washed and had your sins washed away, as Peter talked about even on on Pentecost Sunday, well, it completely removes them. Number 19, it would have been enough for God to tell us in his word, Jesus died and took away your sins. You are completely forgiven. But God didn't leave it at that. He gave us baptism as another means to deliver forgiveness and a beautiful reminder of our complete forgiveness. And I would add a special comfort especially for the youngest of youngest among us that the youngest baptized child has just as much a legal claim to a good conscience as the the oldest lifelong member in our midst um, we are clean because god has washed us why do you think god gave us baptism in addition to the clear promise and testimony of his word well it's another way a visual way that God shows us his grace and mercy as he works faith in the hearts of sinners. And he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you need to sprinkle gold dust on somebody's head or press, press this ultra rare flower from the other side of the world that only, that only grows, you know, three months out of the year on the highest, highest mountain in the, in the Alps or in the Himalayas. And you need to dry that flower and press it and then sprinkle its dust on your head. And then you'll have the forgiveness of sins. He says, Use water. 
maybe it's maybe it's the water of the Maumee River. Maybe it's water that's been purified and piped to your location by the Toledo Water Treatment Plant. Maybe it's the water of the Jordan River. Maybe it's water that fell from the sky. But use water in baptism. He makes it free of charge to communicate his grace, to convey his grace to the heart of another, to give the forgiveness of sins. And where there is forgiveness of sins, there's life and salvation. Finally, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, um, baptism drowns our sinful natures. This one is one of my favorite sections in all of the Bible. And I know I say that multiple times, but Romans chapter 6 does have a special place in my heart. <laughs> Hopefully, and I'm not the only one, obviously. Um, Romans 6, verses 1 through 7 what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So we see here that Paul reminds us that God changes us, not only by forgiving our sins, but creating a new heart where we want to live a new life and a reality that we do live a new life because we have been baptized. Uh, two forces work inside each of us, the sinful nature, the sinful flesh that we receive from our parents and the new man, or also called the new self. Sometimes I refer to it as the new life of faith, the result of the Holy Spirit living in us through faith that we received when God called us to faith through the means of grace. You can review lesson six for more detail on that. Number 20, read Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. How are the sinful nature or the sinful flesh and the new man or the new self or the new life of faith, how are they different? This is important. I say that a lot. <laughs> But this one is. It all is. Okay. Uh, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. Paul writes, What I am saying is this. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out what the sinful flesh desires. For the sinful flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful flesh. In fact, these two continually oppose one another so that you do not continue to do the things that you want to do. We'll scroll down just a little bit, pick it up in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the control of the law. Now the works of the sinful flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, complete lack of restraint, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, orgies, and things similar to these. I warn you, 
just as I also warned you before, that those who continue to do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Scroll down a little bit more. Pick up here in verse 22. There we are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful flesh with its passions and desires. All right, how are the sinful flesh, the sinful nature, and the new man, the new self, and the, or the new life of faith, how are they different? Well, the sinful nature wants to fight and disobey God. The new man wants to do what God wants us to do in thanksgiving. And I think another, another major aspect that jumps out here, and once you recognize it from what Scripture says, you see it even at play in everyday life, that the sinful flesh is by nature disorderly. The sinful nature loves disorder and disarray. Um, and and that's, the, that's the tendency of sin, not to become more organized, but to become more disorderly. Um, anyway, our key term, the sinful nature or sinful flesh, a heart and mind that hates God and wants to disobey him. All people are born with this sinful nature, and we can't free ourselves of it. Um, and it even even as a Christian, it's going to be there with you, and it's going to be that pull to do what God doesn't want you to do. Um, it's going to be that pull toward disorder and and laziness, and that pull toward self and selfishness. Um, but in holy baptism that sinful flesh is drowned and each day um, through sorrow and repentance contrition and repentance that sinful flesh is drowned again because in baptism according to romans chapter 6 we didn't spend a whole lot of time there but according to romans chapter 6 god says that in baptism you have in a sense died to the law and you've been set free to live for god that you've been raised with jesus our key term, new man, new self, or the one that I sometimes use, that new life of faith. That's talking about the new heart and mind that God created within us when he brought us to faith. The new self wants to obey God and thank him for his forgiveness. It is the restoration, or at least a partial restoration, of the image of God um, that is still hampered somewhat by the sinful flesh. The sinful flesh still holds us back from doing all the, the good and godly things that that our hearts want to do for God, to say thank you to God. Um, the sinful flesh is something that each of us has to struggle with for the rest of our lives, but God and continues to encourage us through his word and sacrament, through his means of grace, to give us the power to overcome that sinful pull. And then when you die, your sinful flesh dies. And when you're raised again at the last day, at judgment day, then you will have your same body, um, but perfect, without a sinful flesh, without sinful nature. And you will be uninhibited in praising God. Awesome. Number 21, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, that we died to sin. Because we are forgiven, we want to give our new man, our new self, free reign to live a life of sanctification. That is a life filled with good works. Why don't we want to sin anymore? 
This is a little bit longer example here. God has done so much for us that we want to show our thanks for him. Um, Paul says that you are categorically different, that you are a different category of person now. <laughs> you are no longer dead. You are alive. Why would you want to go back to doing those things that dead people do? <laughs> you know, that's not fun. That's not, that's not good or godly. Um, I have a note in my, in my leader's manual here. Just a reminder, as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, our attitude towards sin changes. Sometimes that takes time. You know, it, even though it's an instantaneous conversion, that growth in changing attitude towards sin um, takes time. It takes continued um, exposure to the Word of God and and His means of grace in the Gospel and Word and Sacrament. Um, so as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, our attitude towards sin changes. First, we are filled with contrition, sorrow for sin, and the recognition that we deserve punishment. That leads to repentance, which includes a turning away from sin and trusting that we are forgiven. So God in his law demonstrates for us and shows us our sin so that we recognize I've done that. I have offended holy God and, and I'm guilty. But that contrition, that sorrow leads us to, to turn away from it and say, Lord, give me the strength not to do that. And finally, we are appointed to Jesus to say, dear Christian, your sin has been taken away. You are not going to die. <laughs> Number 22, what vivid imagery is there in Paul's description of baptism? Verses four and five. Note also Martin Luther's the meaning of baptism for our daily life at the start of the lesson. The vivid imagery from Romans 6, verses 4 and 5, that our sinful natures are killed or drowned in baptism. That's pretty vivid. Um, and, and that's a spiritual reality. <laughs> and it's not just a picture language here. But it's a spiritual reality in that that is the extent to which our God has disarmed our sinful flesh. And, and so... You know, this is a, you know, Romans chapter six is something that I use very often when somebody is struggling with um, addiction of any sort, whether it's a substance addiction or something more behavioral addiction, um, or just feeling trapped, like they, they can't stop doing a particular thing. Um, Romans chapter six, were you baptized? Do we see how much our Lord has done for us in baptism? Our key term, contrition, is sorrow over sin, worked in our hearts by God's law. And every person on earth can experience contrition because every person on earth um, has a conscience. Doesn't mean that they will dwell in that because the, the sinful flesh and the human heart want to point the blame somewhere else, point the finger somewhere else. It's not my fault. I, these were the circumstances and, and come on, look at that person. They, they're doing worse than me. Um, but that contrition is a possibility for all people. And with a little bit of, you know, some words, you can use God's law and apply it to them personally and individually that yes, even though that person did it also, well, you also have done that particular thing. And the fact that that person is a sinner does not make you innocent, just means that you're both guilty under God's law. But contrition doesn't save because contrition doesn't point you to Jesus. Repentance is a change of attitude about sin 
which begins with sorrow over sin and includes trust that God has forgiven us. So, you know, the first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther tacked on the castle church door, October 31st, 1517. Um, in the first of those theses, those statements for discussion, he said, when our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the Christian be one of repentance. Repentance sorrow over sin and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Um, basically, and, and I think that's a very true statement that he made there, obviously in the first of the 95 theses, uh, it's a very true statement because what he's saying is that he wants God's law to be at work in our lives and God's gospel to be at work in our lives. That is to say, feeling sorrow over sin, God's law has its work, and God's gospel has its work in pointing us to Jesus and pointing us um, for the forgiveness of sins to our Savior. Number 23, almost done here. One of the lies that Satan and our sinful natures or sinful flesh tell us when they tempt us to sin is that we have to listen to them because we belong to them. How can our baptisms be powerful tools for telling Satan to get lost and leave us alone? See also Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Well, baptism means we don't belong to Satan. You don't have to listen to him. He, if he says jump, you don't have to say how high. You can say, get out of here. Um, I am a child of God. <laughs> I've been adopted in God's family. Yeah, I think that that is that is something to definitely keep in mind. And, um, you know, Romans chapter 6 is worthy of study, obviously, all the time, but every year by a congregation. Um, especially, you know, we've seen some pretty substantial upticks in interest in demonic activity and, uh, and demonic worship over the last, um, you know, five to six years, and that will probably continue. But Christian, dear Christian, you don't need to be afraid because you've been baptized into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Finally, almost done here. Number 24, Martin Luther wrote his morning prayer and evening prayer for the very purpose of reminding us of the significance of our baptisms. His idea was that we use these prayers every morning when we are getting ready for the day and every evening when we are getting ready for bed. The prayer begins with the name of our triune God, the name into which we are baptized. This name serves as a twice daily reminder of what our baptisms mean for us. Explain why this would be a good way for you to start and end each day. Well, they're there on your page in the blue box. These prayers are a good reminder every morning and night that we belong to God and have his forgiveness. Thanks for so much for joining us. Um, I'll leave page 53 with its diagram and connection question for you. You have your homework there at the bottom of page 53, including sections of the small catechism. If you don't have one of those yet, contact me and let me know. Um, also, you can find the audio for these classes and at the RWJ membership podcast. Just search for RWJ in any of your whatever podcast app you want to use, and you'll be able to find it. You'll also find um, the Raisin with Jesus RWJ daily, our daily podcast, as well as our small group podcast, which looks pretty similar to this one, just instead of membership, it says small group.